0: Dear friends, pride it is a great sin. Pride is the sin that we saw so early, early in the pages of Scripture. It wasn't long that we see the narrative of Genesis being written, that we get to chapter 3 and verse 6 of Genesis. And we see this in regard to what Eve perceives about the fruit on the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And it says this, And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And that pride of life, that allurement that was there, That desire to be like God, that desire to be wise in her own eyes is something that has been catastrophic for humanity ever since Adam fell and all who came after him fell, born dead in their trespasses and sins. And pride has affected humanity ever since that point. Pride, dear friends, is a pervasive sin you could even argue this, that every other sin is in some way connected to the sin of pride. Understand this, dear friends. One of the goals of the Lord, one of his purposes in your sanctification, in your growth in godliness, if you are one who is in Christ Jesus, if you are one who has been brought to life, if your eyes have been opened to the reality of your sin, if you have seen no hope in yourself and found your hope in Christ alone, one of his purposes in sanctification is the removal of sinful pride, this pride that emphasizes the greatness of oneself, this pride that promotes prejudice at times, unrighteous, ungodly, Prejudice. The consequences of sin and the effects of pride are something that manifests themselves even still in the lives of Christians. And we see that even here in this passage. Sinful pride. A, a sinful sectarianism. A sectarianism that is is not wise. A sectarianism that does not see the glory of Christ, that does not see what Christ has accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection. At that time, it would have been recognizing what Jesus was going to do, what Jesus had continually told them that he was going to do. And the disciples at times, some wise in their own eyes, thinking with worldly wisdom, worldly guidance, would would even begin to correct Jesus. Jesus. The pride that is there. Can you imagine? This is the Lord of glory, the one who brought all things into existence from absolutely nothing. And here he is making a declaration that he will die, he will go forward, he will die under the hands of men, he will carry a cross, he will die as a propitiation for the sins of many people. And you have them speaking up wait, wait, wait. That can't be true. How could we have a Messiah that would die? How are all of the hopes and dreams of the nation ever going to be accomplished? And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. So our text here, verses 46 through 50, we see such a circumstance where the disciples once again aren't recognizing, aren't listening to what Jesus has said that is going to happen. What Jesus has declared he is going to do, what is absolutely necessary, that their greatest enemy would be defeated. And even here, those closest to Jesus aren't aren't hearing him, aren't seeing this reality, aren't recognizing the greatest enemy that they have at this time. Look there in verse 46. It says, an argument arose amongst them as to which of them was The greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master. We saw someone casting demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he did not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Consider this incredible circumstance. You have the Lord Jesus Christ here at this time. He is on his road to Calvary. He has just recently told them, let this sink into your ears. I'm going to be taken by men. My life is going to be taken. I am going to be killed. I'm going to carry a cross. I'm going to die. This has been said multiple times. It's going to be said again. And here they are at this point, debating, arguing, over who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing forward i mean who's gonna who's gonna be the big guy who's gonna be the big one who who are gonna be the ones that are sitting on the top of this kingdom who is greatest even amongst them i mean certainly each of the disciples is going to take a certain role in this government if he's establishing some kind of an earthly kingdom i mean who's going to be chief of staff probably peter right Peter's been the one who's been uh, leading the disciples so far. Peter might be a good choice for that. He's good at sharing his opinion. He's good at telling people what they should be doing. He's quick even to give the Lord instructions at times. I mean, consider this. Who's going to maybe be the top general? They're going to need someone to be um, a campaign manager for Jesus as he's going forward. need a strong person for that role. Maybe Simon the Zealot. He could... He could perform that role once the kingdom is established, the earthly kingdom is there. He could serve as the, the general. He could serve as the, the chief officer of the military forces. He's already, you know, he's a zealot. He's been fighting for the motherland so far. Perhaps Matthew, he's tax collector. He's, he's good at finance. Matthew could be secretary of treasury since he's got that background. We could go on and on of the different roles that they had they were probably even having such discussions who's going to be on top well what other roles might they have they're already thinking ahead of the power that they are going to wield in this earthly kingdom that they believe Jesus is going to establish none of them are recognizing none of them are listening to what Jesus has been telling them His kingdom is not of this world. He's not establishing a kingdom. It's going to get all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to have to say it again. My kingdom is not of this world. He will even tell a disciple to put away his sword. Stop defending me with your sword. At this point, they don't understand what he is doing. The kingdom that Jesus is establishing is going to work within the hearts of of men. It's going to influence civilizations in incredible ways. History will not be the same. History will be distinct because of Jesus and the work of his people. You will see the fingerprints of God for thousands of years forward because of the kingdom that Jesus is establishing. But it wasn't an earthly kingdom. They weren't Taking over the governing authorities there in Israel. They weren't taking over the Sanhedrin. They weren't taking over the governing authorities there within Rome, although there are Romans that became Christians. There's some within even the house of Caesar a couple decades later that are being recognized and named by Paul in the book of Romans. But in regard to an earthly kingdom, in regard to taking over the political structures in that day at that time, there's no strategies that the apostles could have used at this time to to take everything over. It wasn't about sending out petitions and getting petitions signed. It wasn't about rubbing shoulders with senators and those who had power and influence. It wasn't about implementing even laws. They were to bring forward the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were to establish churches. They were to raise up leaders. And providentially, the Lord would be sending them out. Sometimes because of persecution. Sometimes because the governing authorities despised them. Sometimes because the governing authorities thought they were Jews and they were getting sent out. Other times the governing authorities recognized they were Christians and they were being persecuted. And as the authorities would persecute and persecute and persecute. The church continued to grow so much so that several centuries later, some theologians and historians will look back and say persecution was the fertilizer for the church. That as they were persecuted, as there was a diaspora, as people were being sent out, it was spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. Raising up churches, even in those places where people didn't, would not have even imagined that they would have been living in. The apostles didn't understand this at this time. They were jockeying, they were positioning for where they would be in this coming kingdom. Trying to work and politicize themselves even now within this group. Trying to determine who is going to be the one who is in charge. Who is going to be at the right hand of Jesus, the The monarch you couldn't see past where they were at this time. And Jesus is cautioning them. He said, like, you don't even know what you're asking. Sit at my right hand. and my, You don't even know what you're asking. The Lord is heading down this road to the cross. Going forward to defeat their greatest enemy. The greatest problem that they have. And here they are standing around arguing. These revolutionaries, these revolutionaries that can't even make it to the prayer meeting. They're ready to turn the world upside down. They're ready to take over the governing structures. They're ready to be the top person in the government. They're ready to take over their roles. They can't even make it to the prayer meeting. They can't even gather together in prayer. they're, They're falling asleep, and you see this pattern many times over. We see here at this beginning portion, pride's pervasiveness. Pride's pervasiveness there in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, the pervasiveness of pride. Pride Pride is insidious. Pride is incompatible with Christianity. Pride is incompatible with the Christian ministry consider what J.C. Ryle says he says of all the sins there is none against which we have such a need to watch and pray as pride it is a pestilence that walketh in darkness and a sickness that destroyeth at noonday No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature. It cleaves to us like our skin. Its roots never entirely die. They are ready at any moment to spring up and exhibit a most pernicious vitality. No sin is so specious and deceitful that it can wear the garb of humility itself. That false humility that sometimes lurks in religion. He continues, it can lurk in the hearts of the ignorant, the ungifted, and the poor, as well as the minds of the great, the learned, and the rich. It is a quaint and homely saying, but only too true, that no pope has ever received such honor as pope self. Pride is so serious, dear friends, that it is something that must be dealt with prior to someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember the religions. We, we've talked about them in sermons previously. The great many world religions that desire to claim Jesus, that want to claim Jesus as their own. You see, you see, so many times I've talked with Muslims, and they say, I love Jesus just like you do. I begin to talk with the man, and we don't believe in the same Jesus. Religion after religion, we could walk through them and see so many want to claim Jesus in some way they they want him to be on their side in their religion in some way you don't see this with any other religious history any other religious leader in history where so many other religions are seeking to claim that leader for themselves but it's their own version of Jesus one of the most offensive things that you can say to prideful fallen man is what the Bible says about prideful fallen man. The gospel is a stumbling block to those that are perishing. The the, the gospel is offensive to those who don't see their need of Jesus, those that are self-sufficient, those that believe that they are doing well in their religion. They are, are making the mark. They are getting close enough. I'm at least better than this guy over here. I mean, if, if, if I'm in trouble, then this guy's in trouble. And certainly it can't be everyone. So if you look at the standard here that I'm using, I'm, I'm doing much better than so many other people. But consider what Paul says in Romans 3. It is a very offensive passage. For those that are dead in their trespasses and sins. It says this beginning in verse 9 of Romans 3. says, What then are Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul here is talking about that mirror of the law that is there before all people. And when you put the standard of God's righteous law, God's holy standard, not man's standard, not man's standard of comparing himself with other people, but God's standard of his holy law that doesn't merely look at the outside of the cup that has been cleansed. Not only looking at the outside of the cup that has been sanitized to to fit within a a certain cultural narrative, but looks at the inside of the cup. Looks at the destruction that is there, the, the deadness that is there. Natural man is unrighteous. Natural man does no good. Natural man, on his best day, is falling short of the glory of God. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. And pride keeps men from seeing their need of Jesus. You read this passage to someone, you explain to them this reality of total depravity. You are falling short. You are not even coming close to God's standard. Yes. You're close to the standard you have made. You're better than this other person, this theoretical person, many times that the person is putting forward. But you fall short of God's standard. That that is offensive. That is offensive. And you begin to have this conversation. And relatives will begin to be brought forward into this conversation as though this is a lawyer bringing forward witnesses against the word of God. Say, well, what about my grandmother? She was a faithful Roman Catholic. She was a a good woman. She was a kind woman. She was a, a holy woman. She was always praying the rosary. She was always there in mass. And Paul says this, in verse 10 of Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. So when you begin to think of your, your aunt or your grandmother or your uncle that did kind things to you, that did religious behaviors, he reminds you, no, not one. Pride is pervasive. Pride is, is insidious. And pride must be dealt with that one may come to faith in Jesus Christ. So we see pride's pervasiveness, but secondly, we see proper perspective purges pride. The disciples did not have a proper perspective when they were having this debate. As they were arguing with one another over who was the greatest, who would be the greatest in this kingdom that Jesus was going to establish, they didn't envision martyrdom. That's not what they were envisioning. They weren't arguing about, okay, which of us is going to be stoned by the Jews first? No, that's not what they were imagining. They were imagining who is going to rule, who is going to control the will of other people, who is going to be the one who is leading the troops forward to defeat the Romans. They didn't have proper perspective because of the pervasiveness of pride and that pervasiveness that is there. Even for those that are in Christ, have come to faith in Jesus Christ, it must be dealt with. So let's look at verses 46 through 40. I've got an alliteration. Some of y'all have noticed that all the points have alliterations. And so they're there throughout the whole thing. So verses 9, 47 and 48. But Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. There is the recognition of the necessity of humility to come to Christ. There is... The recognition of the necessity of humility. To walk in obedience to Jesus. To recognize to to be great in the kingdom of God is not to be one who is making much of yourself. Celebrating yourself. Putting yourself forward. But it is one who is humbling himself. Who has seen the necessity of humbling himself. Because you're claiming to worship a Lord. You're claiming to worship Jesus. And Jesus is one who humbled himself. He is on the road to Calvary. He is going to be taken captive. He is going to be arrested. He is going to be beaten. He is going to be placed upon a cross. He is going to be humiliated. Man's religion has no place for this. You talk about the details and the realities of the cross. And there's a great many religions that will push back. See, the Muslim push back and say, no, no, this didn't really really happen. It, It just looked like it did. God made it look like that Jesus died and rose again. But that's not what really happened. It's an incredible thing for God to do. That's not what really happened and create this Religion that was so influential in the world. Humility is necessary that you may receive the grace of God. Pride of works is in contrast to the humility of grace. The two don't go together. Self reliance, self works is in contrast to the grace of God. The pride of self reliance. Is in contrast to godly reliance. And we see Paul introduce that in verse 21 of Romans 3 that this is natural man. Natural man is trusting in self. And natural man is unable to do anything good in and of himself. And natural man must humble himself and recognize that he is hopeless. In and of himself, there is nothing that he can do on his best day. He is falling short. And look there in verse 21 of Romans 3, Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what is to become of boasting? That's the question Paul asks there. And the answer is it is to be excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The humility that is necessary to access the grace that Jesus provides recognizes that I am hopeless in and of myself. My keeping of the law, my following of the law is insufficient. My ability to keep the law is, is insufficient to make me right before God. Because God is looking at the heart. God is looking at the mind. Not He's not just looking at your outward actions. No one keeps the law perfectly outwardly, but men kid themselves. They create their own standard whereby they judge themselves to believe that, well, I, I've mostly kept it. And they figure, well, God's going to judge us on a curve anyway. I mean, certainly you had professors that, graded you on a curve because so many people in the chemistry class were doing so poorly and you had your grade go from a d to an a because so many other people did so poorly but not so by god's standard god is just and justifier as paul says in romans 3 he is just and justifier and this is offensive to man's religion this is offensive to natural man. But it is required that you see the bad news before you can believe upon the good news. You must understand the bad news. You must understand your natural state. You must understand your natural circumstance. How you came into this world, that only then can you experience the grace of God. Only then can you come to faith in Jesus Christ Christ. The gospel is not good news to one, to the man that believes God is going to just judge his works and and weigh them out. The gospel is not good news to the man that believes, well, if I have enough good deeds or if I've done certain things in a way or I've not done certain things, then God will just weigh this out. I've done sufficiently more good things than bad things, then I'll go to heaven. The gospel is offensive. To such a man, such a man does not hear the gospel and joyfully embrace it. Such a man begins to cross his arms. Such a man begins to despise such a statement. Such a man begins to say things like, nobody is perfect. The righteous standard of God requires perfection. The righteous standard of God demands perfection. Justice, But God is a loving God and he is a kind God. And he has made a way, dear friend, whereby, whereby you can have peace with him. That's where Paul begins in Romans 5. Therefore, we have peace with God. Peace with God because you're justified in Jesus Christ. The legal consequence, the legal requirement of the law has been met for those that are in Christ Jesus. But humility is necessary even to see your need of Jesus. It's necessary that you can see your need to enter through that narrow gate. Not be like one, not like the religious hypocrite. that's climbing over the wall. I'm on the narrow path. I'm doing these actions in the same way. No, you're not on the pathway because you've not gone through the narrow gate. You've not gone through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ that declares to you that you are insufficient. You are unable to do this in and of yourself. That must be recognized. That must be, that must be seen. You've got to understand the bad news. That you can understand the good news. You've got to understand that you are hopeless. To understand that there is hope. In Jesus, you've got to understand that you're dead in your trespasses and sins so that you can be alive in Christ. Jesus requires, dear friends, that even as a Christian, you remember that you are saved by grace and through faith. And there's no place for boasting. They didn't have proper perspective. They didn't have proper perspective and pride was erupting in their hearts. Humility was lacking in their lives. They were not listening to Jesus. They were not remembering the scriptures, the prophecies that declared that Jesus would be a suffering servant. There would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, but he would be one. He would be one who would atone the sins of many. He would be the righteous Lamb of God. They had a Lamb brought forward day and night, every day at the temple and the tabernacle, every single day, morning and evening. And it was sacrificed. Had a Lamb sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, and the high priest is going into the most holy place each and every year and sprinkling blood there upon the Ark of the Covenant every single year. And you have blood caked all over that ark, built up year after year after year. And every single layer of that blood is crying out, is declaring insufficient, insufficient, insufficient. But it's pointing to the one who is sufficient. Day and night, morning and evening, there were lambs sacrificed at that altar. And they would be sacrificed and placed upon that altar the fire would be burning. And it would be screaming out, insufficient, insufficient, insufficient. Pointing to the need of that perfect lamb that God would provide. That perfect sacrifice that would be given on behalf of the people. That man would have to recognize all of his works. All of these works even done here are merely pointing to the one that we need. Even, these, even these, these, these religious actions that are commanded in the ceremonial law required positive laws. This is how they were to live. We have the writer of Hebrews say, the blood of bulls and goats forgives no sins. Now that merely pointed to the one that did forgive sins. And this reminder... This reminder is something, this reminder of the humility that was required to come to Jesus is something the Lord will continue to work in the lives of his people and many times work in the lives of his people through difficulty, through pain, through suffering, through disappointment. But it's for their good. It's for his good and righteous holy purpose. His goal is to conform you to the image of Christ, your Christian his purpose in these times is to give you a proper perspective. When pernicious pride begins to erupt its ugly head, the Lord will bless you and even bring difficulty in your lives. Will apply the work of the word and the spirit in your life to give you a proper perspective. So you can see things rightly. You can remember what the Lord has done. It wasn't about them establishing an earthly kingdom at this time. What Jesus had in store for them was greater than any kingdom that has ever existed or will exist in this world. It was, it was God's kingdom, it was the work of Christ in their lives. Matthew Henry makes a fascinating comment, and he makes this comment. In, In his commentary on Matthew 18, he talks about the importance of humility in the lives of Christians. The importance of having that that proper perspective. Matthew Henry says this, the the humblest Christians are the best Christians and the most like to Christ. And the highest in his favor. They are best disposed for the communications of divine grace, the fittest to serve God in this world and enjoy him in another. They are great, for God overlooks heaven and earth to look on such. And certainly those are to be most respected and honored in the church that are those who are most humble and self-denying. For though they least seek it, they best deserve it. It is possible, it is a reality for the Christian to have misplaced priorities. This is the importance. This is the importance of of the Word of God, of the ordinary means of grace on the Lord's Day, of the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, of the, the gathering together in prayer and the singing of the Word of God. And the people uniting together in one voice for the purpose of worshiping This risen Lord, to give you a proper perspective. This one in seven pattern, this reminder of this new creation of what the Lord has done, of what the Lord is doing, of the kingdom of God and what he is working. To give you perspective that as pride begins to rear its ugly head, there is a reminder of of who I am, where I would be, where I would be apart from the work of Christ Jesus. There are so many things in our culture that can begin to work on on pride, and even those in ministry can begin to be affected in these areas if, if you're not mindful. And the Lord in his grace and his kindness will remind you of these things, the world of social media thrives on attention and clicks, exponential growth, subscribers, followings. There are those in ministries. that are focusing on, upon great numbers, great crowds, filling coliseums. But those who are greatest in the kingdom of God, those who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven, are not those that have the the, the largest subscriber base. They're not those that have the the largest influences on social media. The Lord can use people in different places for many different reasons. And anyone that has opportunity, anyone that has a network of influence, you can use that by the grace of God, and you can use it for the the glory of God, for the greatness of the, the kingdom of God. But the reality is, the greatest people in the kingdom are likely people that, that, that you've never even even heard of. They're people that are not making big names for themselves. They're people that are not, not, not speaking so highly of themselves. See, Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Jesus knew the heart from which they were making these arguments. Jesus knew from where these opinions and concerns were coming from. This is what he says to them. This is verse 47. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The one here who is least By the standards of the world, for the kingdom of God is the one who is great in the kingdom of God. That's what he's communicating. He's saying, you have this flipped upside down. You're looking to Caesar. You're looking to people in high places. You're imagining yourself being there. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, that is not the positions that you're seeking And don't misquote me on that. Don't take that the wrong way. It is very important that we have godly leaders. We should strive to have godly leaders. But our hope is not in the leaders in any culture that we are in. The blessing of Christianity permeates the cultures that it exists in. And it is a blessing to those cultures. But Jesus uses an illustration here that would have been countercultural at this time. He takes a child... And we see Jesus with children many times in in the scriptures, in the gospels. We see him with children. And you've probably never thought about it, but that was a countercultural behavior for him to do. That was a countercultural way of acting. Rabbis many times found it beneath them to speak with children. They didn't find it necessary to interact or to speak with children. You can find them writing of consequences of speaking with children too much in the ways in which it was it was not good for you spiritually, and we see him doing this as well, even speaking with women. You probably are aware that his interaction with women was countercultural at the time, but most of the rabbis were not willing to interact with women they weren 't interacting with women they weren 't interacting with children, but Jesus is demonstrating humility here, even in bringing a child in he 's doing something at this time that is that is shocking to them, that is not what they would have assumed for a rabbi to do. But Jesus is demonstrating what it is to work within the kingdom of God, to work in the kingdom of God in a humble way, to recognize this is a child, this is one who is made in the image of God, this is one who will grow up, this is a soul, this is of great importance. We'll see him humbling himself even further as he will wash the feet of his disciples, shocking behavior, startling behavior, catching the disciples completely off guard. It was against the law for a rabbi to ask his disciple to take off his sandal or to wash his feet. It was not allowed That was only for slaves, it was only for servants, not for disciples. You could send your disciples off to do many tasks for you. We see Jesus sending disciples off, sending them over here to go get bread, sending them over here to go get this item or that item, sending them over here to go get a coin so he can pay the tax, but not to wash the feet. And we have this behavior here that would have been unheard of for a rabbi to command a disciple to do and he is the one who's performing this task before them. So much it's shocking Peter. He said, like, what, what, what are you doing? But Jesus was walking this, this humble road. He was laying himself down. And he would most especially demonstrate humility through the incarnation. And through his death on the cross. Paul emphasizes this in in Philippians 2. These are truths that that, that should be influencing our behavior. It's not just about the things we are to do. There, There are reasons why we should do them. There is the necessity of remembering who Jesus is and what he has done. And that should influence us in our actions But Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, So if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant then yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And we have Paul giving this declaration, this command of how it is that they should act. This commandment of how it is that they should behave. And then he gives them the reason why they should behave this way. What God has done, what Christ has done, is the motivation as to why you should be humble, as to why you should put others before yourself. Look here in verse 5. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. And you have Jesus the one who is God, the one who brought all things into existence. That is John's point at the very beginning of his gospel. Jesus brought all things into existence, and he has clothed himself in flesh. And he has walked upon the earth, and he has suffered as a man. He has laid his life down for others. He has walked in obedience That you, dear friend, as a Christian, can receive the benefit of his righteousness. Your sin was imputed to him, and his righteousness is imputed to you. Like it says in Genesis, it says Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't attain this righteousness through his own actions, through his own behaviors, because he earned it. No, it was credited to him. It was imputed to him. It was granted to him. And that is a reminder that should lead you to walk in humility. It should be a reminder of where you would be apart from the grace of God, apart from the blessing work of the Holy Spirit. But you contrast this with the disciples that don't have the proper perspective. They're all asking themselves in their hearts, Am I the greatest? Maybe I'm the greatest. Maybe I should, should rule in this particular capacity. And they're politicking one with another, not even able to, to gather together in prayer during a time of prayer. But here they are, ready, ready to position themselves politically and take over the world. But Jesus said, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. The one who is least among you is the one who is great. This is important, dear friends, and as believers, as, as as those that are in the body of Christ. There can be an emphasis on certain positions, certain roles in the church. But there's not this, there's not this clergy laity distinction. We, we don't have this understanding. We, we are all in the body of Christ. Of Christ and we are called to work and to serve in whatever capacity the Lord has given to us. The Lord will, will, will judge each of us in, based upon the position that we are in, where He has placed us. You know, if those of you, you've ever had like a, a, a someone will say, well, that sticks, sticks out like a sore thumb, and you, you don't think about something like your thumb very often. Until it's sore, until it's hurts, then you realize that's why we have the expression sticks out like, like a store thumb. Any person in the body of Christ could begin to think of themselves more highly than they should or on the opposite side, you could have this false humility. Begin to think of yourselves less than you should. Well, woe is me. I don't have this ability or that ability. Dear friend, where has the Lord called you to work in his church. Where has the Lord called you? The best thing you can do is to look around where the Lord has you now. Don't imagine being in a place where the Lord doesn't have you. Look where you are now. Consider the opportunities that the Lord has given to you even now. And faithfully serve the Lord. Faithfully walk in obedience at that time. Don't don't imagine being in a place where you're not walk faithful where you are at this time. The Lord has determined where you should be and and what you should do. It's proper perspective. Proper perspective is a blessing at that time. And lastly, we see this. We see pride promotes prejudice. Pride promotes prejudice. We see this in this last portion here. We, we see an offense of the apostles because there is someone else that has the ability to exercise demons. And we see this in verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. And Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is not for you. We have this exclusivism that the apostles are, are are speaking of during this time. This exclusivism that is there that's like, well, they're not in our group at this particular moment. They're not doing things under us at this time. Like how they should not be doing this. This is going to be us. I mean, after all. They were just debating which of them, which of the 12, are going to take the high positions within the next government. Who is this guy over here? Where is this person coming from? Over here, there was a prejudice that they had because of this pride that was working within them. And they weren't recognizing the fact that the Lord was working through others. This is not a passage that we need to go and say, well, doctrine doesn't matter. We don't need to... Take a passage like this and, and, and disregard the importance, and I would argue the necessity of confessional statements. But we must be mindful not to have this us and them mentality. We must be mindful to recognize that, that God is working in His church and God is working amongst His people, and He's working amongst them in a great, great many ways. And I think this is a blessing for us to have a proper perspective. And seeing even the roles that God has given you, that the places that the Lord has you. Have you ever been reading through the Pentateuch and you get to a place and there's these great details? Many details are written, and it says, This person gave this for the purpose of the building up of the tabernacle, and this person was an artist and they. Did this particular behavior. And this particular family was over this portion of the tabernacle. And this family was over the, uh, the time of worship. And you, you see these things and you almost question why. why. Why such details? Why so many thousands of years later do we, do we have these details written down about what people did here in the wilderness the numbers that were there. You read through Chronicles and you see genealogy after genealogy, this listing and listing of people, and you're, you're almost tempted at times, like, well, let me just flip past this. What's really the purpose of this genealogy? Or what's the purpose of these this numbers and numbers and numbers? What significance does that have in my time? Should I even be reading this in family worship? It's not very entertaining. Should we read that and, as we gather together on the Lord's Day? Well, you know the answer is yes, of course. That's an easy Sunday school answer. Yes, we should be reading this. Yes, we should be reading it in family worship. We should be reading it on the Lord's Day. These are, these are areas that this should be preached on even. We should do that because it's the Word of God. It doesn't really answer the question of why it's there. Why do we have these details? Have you ever pondered that? Why do we have these, these these particular details that are written there about who gave what and who did what at that time? And I think what we have is as we do many times in Scripture, but we, we have a glimpse into the mind of God. We have a glimpse into what the Lord is prioritizing here, what what is important to God, that God is remembering. There's many more details that could be there that aren't there, but God is remembering. God has remembered what these people did in their lives, what these people did with what God gave them at that particular time in their lives, these people that had a proper perspective at that time, these people that humbly worked, even thinking anyone was looking maybe, going in, bringing their offering. They had brought items out from Egypt and they humbly brought them forward that they could be used for the building up of the tabernacle. You know, the gold. It was gold. They were bringing it out of Egypt. There it is. It's going into the tabernacle. It's, it's being cre- these items are being created out of what was given to the people as they were leaving. They were giving from what they had at that time. The Lord remembered these things. The Lord is concerned with how you live your life. The Lord is concerned with, with what you give. The Lord is concerned with these particular minute details. These details that you might not imagine are of significance. These small things. Conversations that are happening between, between a parent and a child. Conversations that are happening between coworkers. No one may even know of these conversations. Times that you've worked in other people's lives as the Lord has given you opportunity. In the eyes of the world, these are small things. In the eyes of the world, these are not great things. But the eyes of God, they are great. The Lord has worked in you at this time. The Lord has given you these resources. He's given you these opportunities. He's blessing you to serve Him at that time. Don't mistake these opportunities don't look look past these opportunities think of even in acts 18 that incredible conversation that happened there was a great preacher a man named apollos and he was going about in he was preaching and crowds were gathering around him great speaker a man who could so so easily fall under pride could lose perspective to think more of himself than he should and, and serving in that position as one who was such a great communicator. But there was Priscilla and Aquila that sat down and they told him it, what, he, what he was saying was, was short-sighted. What he was saying was he was not, he was not recognizing the, the baptism of Jesus. He only knew of the baptism of John. And Apollos was a humble man and Apollos listened and was corrected. And Apollos went on to be a blessing to many other people. There are many that heard Apollos preach and raved, were, were so blessed as he spoke. But Here you have a man and his wife that are gathered there at this time to instruct him, to exhort him, to, to correct him, to rebuke him a little bit and say, there's more that you need to know here Your preaching is short-sighted at this point. You're not understanding the whole picture. In God's eyes, that was a great action. That was an important that God sent them for the purpose of doing that. Everyone saw Apollos, but we have there recorded in the book of Acts this husband and wife that went and sat down and spoke with him. Jesus said, for he who is least among you all is one who is, is great. It's not the greatness in the eyes of the world. i close with this quote. There's a quote that I love. It's, it's the king asked John Owen one time. He said, why do you go and listen to John Bunyan? Basically, said, why do you go and listen to that tinkerer? John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, was not a man of wealth, was not a man of power. He was a Baptist. Baptists were heavily persecuted in England at this time. He was a tinkerer. He didn't even have great skills. Basically, he, he when you had pots and pans that were broken, he would fix them for you. He had a little cart. He'd, he'd fix your pots and pans for you so you could go and, and cook your dinner. Not one who, who was wealthy. But John Owen would go and listen to John Bunyan preach. And when asked the question, why do you go and waste your time listening to this tinkerer John Owen, the great learned John Owen, the one that served as a seminary professor, the one who, who was the chaplain in the parliament, the one who was a wealthy man, one who was a well-dressed man even. And many don't know that, but he was one who was a little ostentatious with, his, with the way that he dressed. He was, he was wealthy, and he wore nice clothes, colorful clothes. And this is what he said, He said, could I possess the tinkerer's abilities? Please, your majesty, I would gladly relinquish all of my learning. He saw the beauty of what this man that was low in the eyes of the world was communicating, communicating the greatness of what he said, the beauty of this glorious gospel that he communicated, the ways in which Bunyan, as a storyteller, was able to communicate these things. And he was all struck by this message that he shared. He had a proper perspective, proper perspective. Pride is, is pervasive. Pride is pervasive. It, we are born with the effects of pride upon our hearts and our lives. and it is necessary. It is necessary even to come to Christ. That you have a proper perspective. Proper perspective will purge pride. It is there in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this reminder of who God is and a reminder of who you are and the ways in which you fall short. That is a reminder of your need of Jesus and the need to come to Christ and walk through that narrow gate. It gives you proper perspective. Gives you proper perspective. Even there, as a Christian, a reminder of who Jesus is and what he has done should encourage you in humility to walk in obedience to Christ and fight that pride that promotes prejudice, this this pride that promotes a prejudice and looks at things, forgets even as a Christian, and begins to think of things from a worldly perspective, forgets what Jesus says that he who is least among you is the one who is great. May we not flip that upside down. May we not see that incorrectly. May we recognize and remember that we worship and serve a risen Lord Jesus Christ that humbled himself, condescended to us, even in clothing himself in flesh, humbled himself even into obedience to Calvary and dying upon the cross that we may be saved, and Christ did that. Christ did that, that you would have proper perspective, that you would humbly walk in obedience with him, that he would conform you to his image and accomplish his purpose in you. May the Lord do that in your lives. May the Lord bless you to remember what Christ has done and all he has accomplished on your behalf.